And now, coming to you live from the Waldorf Room, high atop the legendary Cood Street Motel 6, a place where the air is fresh and sweet, and at night the stars put on a show for free, it's Jonathan Strand and Gary K. Wolf with very special guest Nalo Hopkins on, on the Cood Street Podcast! Yay! <laughs> so that's how you pronounce that. Which? Cood Street? Yeah, Cood Street, yeah. Cood okay. Mm-hmm. Cood Street, there's... For some reason, there are three of them here in Perth and none of them anywhere else. All right. I don't even know who Kood is. If anybody ever listening to the podcast does know what, who it was, let me know. And yes. welcome, Nalo Hopkinson, to the Kood Street Podcast. It's great to have you back. Hello. It's very good to be back. <laughs> uh, I, 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 and congratulations on Sister Mine, which I, it's actually out in, and available now, isn't it? It is. It came out uh, March the 12th. Oh, excellent. It's been out for a month almost. Yes. Well, I had a lot of fun with that novel. And it looks Thank like you, you did, too. I, as much as I have fun writing, which I mostly don't, um, yes, I did. <laughs> <laughs> I, I guess one of the things that comes up when we talk about Sister Mine and about uh, the chaos is, this really is you coming back very actively after a long period of not writing a whole lot, isn't it? Yes, I had a lot of unfinished work, and so I'm finishing it as quickly as I can, uh, which creates the happy circumstance that I've had three books come out in the past year and a bit. That must be enormously satisfying after a long, probably frustrating time without a lot coming out. Oh, so much, so much. It's uh, it's satisfying. It, it, it uh, I'm no longer as worried that I have tanked my own career by being sick. <laughs> <laughs> it's all good. Because well, I know you had some hard times, but I remember talking to you about what was then called Donkey. What five years ago, maybe? Yep. Huh? That's very, very true. Uh, it was so hard to write. I couldn't. I couldn't. Uh, I couldn't finish a sentence, either reading one or writing one. I mean, I'm still finding little snippets of things that I wrote during that five-year period that I have no memory of. Um, I, I, the only way that I know they're mine is because they're in my notebook, in my handwriting, um, and in my particular style. No memory. So I was still writing really? clearly, but not able to connect the dots. Yeah. <laughs> hmm. so, so when did it really turn around then? Um, it started to in... 2009, um, when uh, my partner and I were actually house-sitting for Locus mm-hmm. um, right after Charlie passed away. Um, mm-hmm. So that meant we had housing for a couple of months and um, a little bit of money for food. Uh, and my brain started to come back to me. I had by then figured out what was wrong and was um, dosing myself for the extreme anemia that made it impossible to think. Um, so slowly in 2009, it began to come back. Um, and uh, I'm still having moments of sort of, ooh, here's a thing that I can do now that I wasn't able to do a few years ago. Um, I read a couple of books uh, on the plane on the way to, to the Octavia Butler um, separate, um, celebration at Spelman the other day. I, I read books from cover to cover. Yeah. It's been a while. <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> It helped that they were good books. Well, that that, that is good. Mm-hmm. 
I remember at the time we were talking about this, at least Liza and I were talking at one point about, about you became, I guess, I, I don't think if we, if we ever made it official, but we were talking about, hey, we have a locust writer in residence, the first ever locust writer in residence. We were all kind of celebrating about that when you were, to you it's house sitting, <laughs> to us it's an honor. <laughs> it was a wonderful place to be, um, just to be surrounded by like-minded people in such a beautiful part of the world, and um, mm -hmm. it, it was, it's, it's something I will always remember. Um, and just the little sort of memories of uh, Charles that were around. Uh, at one point I realized that the desk I had been working at for months was, uh, there was a box on it that had his ashes in it. Yes. <laughs> oh dear. I <laughs> at first I thought, oh, it's just an empty box. And then I, I sort of pushed it and went, no, that's way too heavy. That that would be Charles. <laughs> 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 and I could just hear him giggling. <laughs> yeah, right, exactly. I think it got you that time. Well, it took them a while yes. to decide what to do, so... Uh, yeah. But then you also had the um, uh, the, the really nice uh, position at, at, at Riverside, come and then go away again and then come back again, which must have been a little bit nerve-wracking yes. for a year there. Yeah. Well, I hadn't actually been looking for that teaching position. And in fact, while I was on the mend, um, people kept sort of sending me the email about the job. And of course... I know, knew very little about how academia works and still don't know that much. Um, but um, to me, tenure is a vague concept that doesn't mean that much. The, um, I mean, means a whole lot more now. <laughs> but the people I know, well, many yeah. of the people I know are, who are teaching in universities are, um, have no time or space to do anything else. And so I kept, I'd get the emails and say, no, I'm, I'm on the mend. I can do one thing. I can either write or I can teach, and I know which one I would rather do. Um, mm -hmm. Until I heard from the selection committee, um, they, they, there were a few people that they asked specifically to send in applications, and, and that, I think, provided enough adrenaline for me to sit down and be able to read the job call properly. So, yes, I, I, I interviewed and got the job in uh, 2009, and then their funding got pulled and they had to withdraw all outstanding job offers. And they'd warned me that that was a possibility. So though it was a shock, uh, I don't feel hard done by, but bless their mm -hmm. hearts, they got permission to hold the job until for me until they could offer it to me again. And so I started in 2011. Wow. Yeah. That sounds like a precarious, difficult time. It was horrible. It was um, a few years of living in constant panic mode, yeah. of waking up in the morning and not knowing how I was going to survive. Uh, and it was happening to both me and my partner. Um, it, I would not wish that on anyone. Is it coincidence that you come out of that period of time with a novel called The Chaos? Because it sounds like it was that kind of a period of time. <laughs> <laughs> Interesting. You would think that my original title for that novel was Taint. Ah. <laughs> ah. My, my, my editor wouldn't let me, she didn't really, she really didn't want me to use it because she said on top of everything else, it was making her sales reps giggle. <laughs> so, <laughs> 
I remember. Okay, I, I, I didn't know that was going. I didn't know that's what became of Hain because I remember you're talking about that title as well. But that brings yeah. up an interesting thing about your use of language. Um, I think my favorite, my favorite new word from sister mine is clay picking. So I thought I'd <laughs> check that out, and I so I Google clay picking, and it, all it does is come back to sister mine. Yes. Did you? Did you? You just made, made that up. up, didn't you? I did. That's a great word. <laughs> Thank you. I actually had it's, it's it. It actually, was originally mud picking, but it seemed too much like mud blood, so I changed it. Yeah, but it's. Um, I mean, essentially, it's kind of a word for 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 what rolling called what muggles. Yes, exactly. Uh, and yeah, that's why I I didn't make it mud bloods because that's the pejorative they use in the Harry Potter novels for Hermione. Right. Um, but yes, it's also a, a combination of um, sort of a West African word for children. In Jamaica, we say pickney. In Nigeria, I believe they say pickin, but it basically means small, small children. That's where pickaninny comes from, then, in American slang, yes. in the old southern yes, slang. Yes, exactly. Yeah, okay. Yes. I, I often get people who are slightly disturbed um, when they see the word pickney in my, in my um, novels and realize where it, where it comes from, and they wonder if I'm using it as a pejorative, but in Jamaica, it just means children. Ah. Well, one of the things that fascinated me in, in, in reading this, and actually reading everything since Brown Girl in the Ring, and I had a, I, I could tell you the story of how that, how Betsy showed that novel to me. But, you know, once you start <laughs> introducing all these terms that nobody had seen in science fiction and fantasy, once you start writing about duppies and sukuyants and that sort of thing, you can, you can just make stuff up and people will think, oh, that's probably authentic because all the other stuff is checked out. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, and I've had that happen in, in reviews where people just assume that if something in my work feels folklorish to them and they don't know it, that it must be Caribbean. And sometimes right. it's not. Sometimes it's German. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, I, I do make stuff stuff up as well there's a word in sister mine um knob carries yep and i actually can't remember whether i made it up or whether it's a real word i think it may be a real word but um i love words this i collect them <laughs> do you feel mm -hmm. sister mine kind of brings you back to a, a certain place in your work because i mean it's back in a sort of a fantastical toronto it's it's it has a lot that's not uncommon in feel with brown girl in the ring Mm-hmm. You know? Yeah. I, 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 Toronto is kind of magical. For all that people think it's, who live there, tend to want to think it's a very mundane place. It, it, it's a very unlikely place from my perspective. Uh, and it's a lovely place for writing fantasy in because that there are people from all over the world there. Mm. And so everybody's... Um, uh, folklore is in a way there. Did it does it give you a location where you can, I guess, blend folklore in new and different ways in order to help create stories when you use it as a setting? Yeah, 
Very much so. It meant that I didn't actually have to do a lot of hand-waving around why uh, the Trinidadian nature god is in a, a, a care home in Toronto. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's kind of neat. I mean, I should, yeah. say, I should say it's kind of irrelevant, but uh, uh, but we were all in Toronto last year, obviously, for World Fantasy. And certainly my oh. experience was that it was a rich, multicultural community and spent a lot of time, in fact, talking to... Uh, people from Jamaica who lived in Toronto now, which seems to be a, a major thing. And that's obviously where you, your, what your family did. They came from Jamaica up to Toronto at, at some point. Uh, yes, my family is my, I and my mother are Jamaican and my brother and my father Guyanese. Mm -hmm. um, and we moved around the Caribbean for a while. I think we were living in Guyana when we made the move up to Canada. Um, and, there was very definitely a wave of uh, Caribbean immigration to Canada um, that started, I believe, in the 50s. Mm -hmm. It's ongoing, but but there are all kinds of waves of immigration to Toronto. <laughs> so um, we're one of the older ones. <laughs> <laughs> just, just presumably not bringing all of their gods with them, typically. I mean, have a lot of people compared the book um, in its background to American gods f f to you? I think only just, Gary has. Okay. Which, I just, which like, I just wanted to use the phrase. I just wanted to use the phrase "Canadian gods." It was. <laughs> it just struck me. <laughs> which has prompted me to start rereading American Gods and having a lot of fun with it. Oh, good. It is, yeah. But yeah, but, we, but have, is we have. There was a documentary made at one point by, uh, I believe it was by Yael. Um, called A Lot to Share that was about um, a space in Toronto where a synagogue and a mosque shared the same parking lot because they were side by each. Mm -hmm. um, not that uncommon because people do bring their gods with them. Well, yeah. But the, I mean, how much do you get treated as a Canadian writer? Um, I know in Canada you're certainly celebrated, but do people, general readers see the Canadian connection as being that important? Because I think you're right. I think it's a it's a kind of melting pot that isn't the same kind of melting pot we get in the, in the United States. No, it is not. It's not a melting pot at all. It's it's uh, more like a stew. Um, okay. The, the, so there isn't the notion that you, you come to Canada and then you become Canadian, which means you have to forsake all others. Um, the, it's more that you bring everything you are to being Canadian. So I can be Jamaican Canadian, I can be African Canadian, I can be. Um, it, it, there isn't the same sense that you have to abandon everything. Um, and right, I get seen as a Canadian writer. I think in the U.S. I, I get seen as other, and people aren't always sure which other it is. So sometimes they say Canadian and sometimes they say Trinidadian, which is only partly true sometimes. And sometimes they say Jamaican and eh, whatever. <laughs> None of it is untrue. I wonder if people are doing doctoral dissertations on you yet. I, I mean, I think they've done so on I, my work. I think there have been some uh, some stuff about your work, about post-colonialism and this sort of thing. And it's interesting yeah. when somebody writes writes unapologetic science fiction and fantasy because we, 
we should we shouldn't sort of categorize you as a fantasy writer because there there is Midnight Robber. I mean, there's a there's a you know good old fashioned science fiction novel in that mix. Um, mm-hmm. But I didn't know. I have no idea where I was going with that point. <laughs> <laughs> You're asking about people doing doctoral dissertations on me. Well, yeah, because there's there's an obvious connection that academics could not resist, and that has to do with your father and with Derek Walcott. And with the whole, mm-hmm. you know, Trinidad theater workshop thing, which gives you a kind of royalty connection to what most Americans think of as magic realism. Yeah, um, there has been um, there was an extended essay that um, a Jamaican academic wrote about me um, quite a few years ago that was published in Jamaican newspapers. But that was mm-hmm. the angle she took. But no, most people don't really, uh, Caribbean people make the connection, but to them it's not an unusual connection. Mm -hmm. But other people don't mostly. Let me ask you. I'm curious. Gary. Oh, go ahead, John. No, you go ahead. I was going (laughs) to know, I don't think I've ever asked you, but did did you, 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 you at least had met Derek Walcott a few times. Oh, yeah. Um, Okay. For a while, I would, my mother would, drive me to his home every day in the mornings and I believe his then wife would take me and their daughter to school. Wow. So I know that wow. I knew them quite well. And I've been at rehearsals at, at their place and when uh, Brown Girl was coming out I needed to get Derek's permission to publish the excerpts from his play Tijan His Brothers. Right. Um, so I called him, <laughs> and he was quite wonderful about it. I mean, one of so the yes, things I... that some of us sort of... Oh, go ahead. I'm sorry. Finish. Oh, no, I'm done. Oh, one of the things that some of us sort of collect in the back of our heads for no rational reason is Nobel Prize winners who seem okay with the fantastic. <laughs> I mean, there's Doris yeah. Lessing. You go far enough back, there's Rudyard Kipling, and then there's Derek Walcott. Yep, for sure. It, it's, it's, I don't know where that sort of um, hold your nose and think of England <laughs> attitude to, uh, to uh, the literature of the fantastic, where it happened or why. Sometimes I suspect mm-hmm. it's because um, those novels actually sell. <laughs> but, um, well, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> what a trick! I did not grow up with with uh, any kind of um, suspicion that what I was reading was somehow impoverished literature. I didn't discover that until um, I'd begun publishing it. <laughs> <laughs> what attracted you writing, uh, you know, science fiction and fantasy? It's what I always read. Uh, or, or in some way, literature of the fantastic. I mean, my dad was um, teaching English and Latin uh, in senior high school level. And so, uh, plus being a, a playwright um, and an actor and a poet. So the books on our bookshelves were things like um, Homer's Iliad and Gulliver's Travels mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. and collections of folk tales and um, just a lot of, literature of the fantastic stuff I could not read now uh, <laughs> as a child you just kind of suck it all in yeah. and take what you can from it um, 
So that's what I read in preference to the sort of more um, mimetic fiction, because mimetic fiction felt a lot like real life, and I sort of felt like I was having one of those. I wanted something different. <laughs> so it's what I've always but read. So, so you read genre science fiction and fantasy, not just uh -huh. classic. Okay. Yep. But you did a master's degree in what, Russian literature? No, my, my uh, undergrad degree is in Russian and French languages, which meant I had to also ah. take Russian literature. I managed to skip French literature, I'm not sure how. Um, it is a, a deficit I must mend. <laughs> but um, my master's degree was in writing popular fiction through Seton Hill University. Mm. Right, I knew that. But then I was on my third novel, though. <laughs> my master's thesis was under contract. <laughs> <laughs> it's interesting. The same thing. The same thing happened to Nettie Okorafor. It was her second novel was under contract, and I remember her committee kept telling her, "We have to decide on whether or not this is publishable." And she kept saying, "It's under contract. It's Hyperion. It's coming out." <laughs> <laughs> They don't know how to cope with that. They really don't. No, well... Here in Australia, like, every uh, second science fiction writer has done a PhD, and I don't think, you know, the university structure is ent entirely... I've got their head around the idea that all those books are going to be published because, that you know, there's a market for them. They've all been pre-sold. They're used to books that, you know, get, end up being bound up as theses, and they've got three copies of them in the library, and that's it. Yeah. Well, there's that. Yeah, and there's, there's also the question... I mean, now you must be running into this, and you must have run into it a bit at Seton Hill. There's a sense, um, I'm going to go off on a hobby horse for a second, there's a sense among many people I know who are involved in MFA programs, by which I mean mostly mainstream MFA programs, that anyone who actually has a contract and, God knows, an advance on a book and possibly a marketing campaign designed for the book is so alien to their experience that they can't get their heads around it. Yeah, I didn't find that at Seton Hill so much since... Um, the woman who'd, who'd uh, gotten permission to actually have the program go, it was specifically mm. in writing popular fiction. Uh, oh, that's so, right. That's unusual. Yeah, yeah. And yet, I think at that point, I was the most published person there, um, perhaps maybe including some of the profs. Um, so it was not... People expected that it could happen. It just, for many of them, wasn't happening to them yet. But yeah, I definitely get the the, the feeling from other um, other places in the academy that uh, it's somehow déclassé <laughs> to make money. <laughs> yeah, to get read. I mean, much <laughs> money, money to get read. Well, to get read. Um, yeah, to have. Yeah, that somehow I, I, commercial means bad. Yeah. Um, and I, I get people saying things who like, well, we can't assess this particular writing by this student because it's genre. So um, we'll leave it to you. And it's pretty clear when we talk about it that we have the same assessment of the work. I may know the canon better, but mm -hmm. in terms of what's working and not working in a piece, we have the same assessment. And, and, and as much as I want to, go ahead, Jonathan. Much as I, and yet they, they continue to filter it through that perspective that that it, it's something different and other than what they're familiar with. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah. What's Ooh. fun to me are the closet, the closet science fiction and fantasy fans um, <laughs> in, in academe. Um, people who, you know, you don't have to scratch them too deeply before they're happily chattering about genre along with you. Yeah. But uh, it's not been what they've been able to do as writers. Or, or I guess to bring to the conversation either. I mean, because if it's not a, an atmosphere where people are, I guess, admitting to reading science fiction and fantasy, then they're not going to be accustomed to a dialogue about it uh, in any kind of um, detailed or rich kind of a way. Yeah, that's why it's lovely being um, here at UCR, because um, my hire and Rob Latham's and, and uh, uh, Cheryl Vince were built around the Eaton collection, around the science fiction archive. Uh, and so right. there's all kinds of cool things happening. There's the conference that's coming up that happens every other year. And um, there is a, a science fiction reading group that is um, informal, mostly grad students. Um, so there are places to begin having those conversations. I still think we have a long way to go. I mean, one of the things I've found uh, is that... <sighs> I don't know, it, this might be just my bias, but I find that a lot of people who set out to try to write science fiction, uh, the, the, the learning period seems to be longer. Hmm. So that their writing at the beginning feels less mature than those of their peers who are writing in other genres. Mm-hmm. And I think that stands them at a disadvantage when it comes to things like applying to grad school. Yeah. I think that's true. And... Uh, yeah. I, I remember talking, I've, I've mentioned this on the podcast before, talking to Daniel Keyes, who taught at Ohio University, not Ohio State, but Ohio University for many years. And uh, everybody wanted to study science fiction with him because of Flowers for Algernon. And he wouldn't yeah. let them write science fiction until the second semester. He said, if you take this two-semester sequence, the first semester you're going to le- learn to write a, 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 a decent story. You have to learn story structure, you have to learn character, you have to learn all the details of writing a good story. And then in the second semester, you can write science fiction and fantasy because it's harder, because you have to have a good story at the base, and then you have yes. to be able to master the science fiction and fantasy stuff. Yeah. It's harder, and it's very elusive. Um, and I'm finding that a lot of my undergrads who are wanting to write science fiction and fantasy, um, through no fault of their own, no longer have the sort of base in um, in various types of language use, historical references, uh, literary references that, mm-hmm. that are in the genre, they just don't have them. And so their writing is um, has a very long way to go. Interesting. I could see that. I, I, well, yeah. I've, I've run into undergraduate students who, who want to write who say they want to write fantasy, but what they really want to do is write Neil Gaiman. Or and George Martin. Turns out that's, oh, yeah, or George Martin, or, or maybe Robert <laughs> Jordan. Or money. Because that's what they've read. Yeah. yeah, yeah, exactly. Or, or um, it takes the grad students a very long time to break out of the mold of we must be able to see the happenings in this story as um, metaphor. Because it is so dinned into them that it's not real fiction if the uh, yeah. Yeah. fantasy creatures are real. So they really struggle with it. Yeah. 
But but is this okay? Is this a real problem with their fiction, or is this another example of genre being exclusionary? Because I know when I talk to people about how people approach genre, they'll say things like, "Well, you know, you need to be well read in the field. You need to understand the context of what you're trying to do." And they'll say, "Well, you're just trying to keep people out because they don't meet some kind of barrier level of knowledge and experience." You know, is is it a, a real substantial? material thing as well as being that kind of exclusionary thing? I think it's both. Um, There are people who are very um, invested in policing the boundaries. Um, And I'm actually um, writing a review right now in which I talk about, uh, I've seen it happen to women writers in this genre. It certainly happens to um, people from elsewhere. So black and from the Caribbean means that every so often at a reading I give somebody who usually male, invariably white, who's been reading the science fiction classics for a long time decides it's his job to quiz me on whether or not I know them. Mm. Uh, And then try and point out that, you know, Heinlein was doing this before me. Um, As though this is news. (laughs) (laughs) There's a lot of things Heinlein was not doing before me. So there, there is very much that, that um, policing of the boundaries. Uh, and yet, because I think art in part talks to, it's a conversation. Mm-hmm. It's a conversation that builds upon what came before, as well as, as um, uh, having lots of room for new takes on things and new ideas. So if you don't know some there's you know you no longer can know all of what came before in science fiction fantasy but if you don't know some of it you tend to not be part of the conversation yeah so and there's always the danger of just simply reinventing the wheel of course which happens more quite often yeah Uh, but there are a number of writers and i think you're right it it surprises me one of the things that i've learned in this multiculturalization of science fiction over the last 15 or 20 years is how many people around the world actually have read Heinlein and Asimov. Uh, yep. <laughs> people like Karen Lord and Barbados, you know, it's just, it's, yep. they're, they're, you don't have to be part of that sort of classic white male establishment to have read this stuff. But then, but then logically, no. Gary, wouldn't you think that the, that the best-selling science fiction fantasy writers of all time would be the most easily found? That's what you could... Well, I think that's part of it. I mean, that's what you could find yeah. in a bookstore in Perth in 1972 when I went looking. And I assume it was mm-hmm. true elsewhere. Yeah, pretty much. Um, Let me ask. But I think they're not mm. reading it with the same, the same uh, in built-in bias that you get in uh, North America. I mean, I just finished reading um, Oscar Wilde, short, Re- short brief life of Oscar Wilde, and mm. uh, noticed um, how much Juno was Juno Diaz was sort of like I sometimes feel compelled to showing his pedigree. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Say, see, I really know this stuff. I really, really do. Uh, Genre writers do that all the time. I mean, there are genre writers. I mean, admittedly, this goes back a few years when they were seeking respectability. And they they would talk about Oscar Wilde. They'd talk about Balzac. They'd talk about Dickens. And yes, they probably read those people as kids, but they—that's not what they were writing. <laughs> they were trying to do Heinlein yeah. again. Yeah, 
But when I say sharing his pedigree, I meant sharing his science fiction pedigree. Yes, having to make reference to, to both Star Trek that, and yeah. to Trantor or something. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yep. I mean, uh, I recall when I first was um, on tour, I forget with which novel, probably the second one. Yeah, that's when I first went on tour. Being in a bookstore, a big bookstore in some American city, and I cannot remember which one, and I'm not going to name it anyway. Um, and the person working behind the desk um, simply found me astonishing and made a point of coming out from behind the desk and taking me up and down the shelves and saying, so this is Le Guin, oh, have you heard of her? This is, you know, Asimov, have you heard of him? This is, and I thought, what is, what is this person doing? Um, <laughs> but I think this he was having a hard time. third world person probably needs to have an education. Oh God. Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Whereas, as far as I'm concerned, you can see it in my writing. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I've had as much as I admire. I'm sorry. No, you go ahead. Um, I was going to say, as, as, uh, this raises an issue that I was going to ask a few minutes ago. As much as I admire Seton Hills having a program and writing popular fiction, there's still that problem that popular fiction is something different from, I presume, literature, which all the other MFA programs at least pretend to be teaching their students to write. Yes. There is that notion. And so because my audience sort of crosses um, crosses genre lines, mm-hmm. every few weeks I'm having to um, deal with somebody who is not a science fiction fantasy reader who is trying to prove to me that my writing is not science fiction fantasy. Um, ah, okay. Because it is doing things that they don't think science fiction fantasy do, when in fact, of course, they can and do quite often. Yeah. And of course, there's also the argument that there is really nothing that science fiction and fantasy can't do if handled well. But I think I know you. I, I think I know what you're talking about. I've got a friend, actually, a colleague at Roosevelt, who I think did her dissertation on Edward Donacott and that whole tradition, and she's perfectly willing to look at you in that tradition. And ignore the whole science fiction and fantasy part of it. Yeah. That's what I get a lot from uh, Caribbean academics. Is Yeah, is you can be a post-colonial the, writer. Sure. The, they, they might not know that much about genre, but um, they recognize what I'm doing. Mm-hmm. And they don't, they don't care. The, I think in the Caribbean, at least, there isn't the, the kind of minute genre definitions that you have here with the strong boundaries. Be- partly because um, publishing industry is probably just a lot smaller. Um, yeah. We don't have the, the, the luxury of subdividing 12 ways from Sunday and getting into fights. about <laughs> 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 <I've got laughs> Whose work is really literature? <laughs> is, that a point so where, they, uh-huh. so is that a point where contextualization works against things? Because, I mean, I was thinking when you're talking about te- you know, teaching people to write genre fiction, context is what, what you need to basically define it and give it give it uh, contrast with other things but when you get into a play a situation where everything is broken down and broken down and broken down then it become is it does it become too se- separated out and, and pulled away from one another I think it does um, and I think that really works against sort of the whole project of literature yeah. Uh, because writers talk across the boundaries, those who pay attention. <laughs> uh-huh. um, 
and even if they don't, um, I'm, I'm pulling from everything. Yeah. Uh, and I'm used to getting a certain amount of snobbery from people who think that, that that's not a good thing to do. Um, I, I'm a fan of dance, for instance, and there are forms of current dance that to me feel very much, I don't know the, the, uh, the academic terms I'm going to throw around post-colonial cause mm-hmm. I kind of sort of, it, but uh-huh. it feels very apt to me to be something to be studying as a science fiction writer. Sure. Um, but should I go to somebody in the dance department and say, you know, I love ballet. I also love So You Think You Can Dance. <laughs> uh-huh. I get rolled eyes. And I'm like, you know. Yeah. But there is useful material for me there. Yeah. There's something that informs my own practice. And there is beauty there and there is content and there is criticality. And there's a whole lot of schlock, but there always is. Yeah. So is part of your mission as a science fiction or fantasy writer to the extent that you would agree to having a mission at all to bring things to, into the context of science fiction and fantasy that weren't previously, to broaden the context of science fiction to encompass them rather than to surrender the, that context altogether. That's part of it. Um, I guess it's it's sort of the, <laughs> this is what science fiction looks like. Yeah. This is what 40 looks like. This is what 50 looks like. Um, so that that's <laughs> part of it. Yeah. Um, I find myself, as I'm teaching, um, bringing in children's picture books, for instance, and, and sometimes having my students sort of be very surprised that uh, they are every bit as meaty to to um, to read and to assess as a full-length novel. Mm-hmm. Uh, so yeah, that's part of it, is to say that, that science fiction canon does do all these things, and um, get over it already. <laughs> <laughs> and I think it just makes the writing richer. I mean, the people whose work I love have been doing that from since. I've been doing that uh, forever. Yeah. Whose work do you love? Let's let's get into that. Um, Chip Delaney, always, always. Um, mm. I like China Mabel's work. Uh, Ursula Le Guin. Now you're talking to somebody who for five years couldn't read, so there are huge holes in in what I have yeah. been reading. Sean Tan. Mm-hmm. Um, yes. Oh, I love his work so much. <laughs> um, Kelly Link. Yeah. Oh, my, I could go on forever. Sure. But growing up, growing up, who did you read? Growing up, I read... What they gave me in school to read. Mm-hmm. I remember reading uh, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe um, in high school, in my first year of high school in, in where was I, Trinidad. And when we read uh-huh. the section where um, Aslan awakes Narnia, um, the teacher let me read Aslan's part, which was wonderful. I can still quote it. Um, I read the books on my parents' shelves, which included, as I said, uh, the sort of European classics, mm-hmm. um, but also included uh, folk tales, a lot of poetry, a lot of plays. Um, so anything I could get my hands on, I, I recently did a 
a little documentary uh, for science fiction writing and the Eaton Collection at UCR. And uh, they filmed it in the Eaton Collection and I had them bring out, I forget what year it was now, it was January, maybe 68 of mm -hmm. Playboy, where the um, Kurt Vonnegut's Welcome to the Monkey House mm -hmm. um, was serialized. Wow. I read it when it came out because I somehow got my hands on a copy of Playboy as an eight-year-old. <laughs> um, cool. <laughs> I didn't know or care from the sex and all the naked cool. ladies, but I like, you know, the strange stories. Um, so my reading was actually a lot broader in scope as a child than it is now. <laughs> <laughs> at some point between now and then, at some point, though, you must have read something by Asimov, something by Heinlein, something by, I don't know, Zena Henderson. I mean, at some Absolutely. point you must have started reading genre science fiction. Uh, yeah, yeah. Uh, I mean, when I was ooh, probably about 14, uh, my mother, we were in Trinidad, Trinidad, Jamaica, Jamaica. My mother was uh, working as a clerk at the public library, the Kingston Public Library on Tom Redcomb Avenue. Uh -huh. And uh, I would walk there after school. And because uh, the, they, they divided the library into adults and children's and you had to be a certain age to get an adult card but I was already reading at an adult level. So um, they gave me, or my mother engineered for them to give me an adult card. And I mm -hmm. went looking for the things I knew I liked. And science fiction fantasy shelves was where I found them. I remember reading the, um, I'm gonna forget the name of the thing now. They recently made it into a film, a second film. Uh, it's about, a, for one of the first stories about a, a, an, an engineered plague no. It'll come to me, yeah. but that's where I read it. I remember reading um, Shattered Like a hmm. Glass Goblin. Glass Goblin. Okay, cool. Harlan. Yes. I remember reading, um, I forget, I think it was later when I discovered Zena Henderson, and I was reading Hitchcock collections of horror and scaring myself horribly. <laughs> and had oh, great. Those were terrific. <laughs> he didn't edit any of them, but that's oh. okay. I was losing nights of sleep because uh, I was, uh, I still can't read horror. Um, but yeah, that's when I, I started to read genre science fiction, uh, because it was giving me the stuff that I had been reading on my own. And that was the, the sort of European classics and the folktales. It strikes me as interesting that you can't read horror and yet Brown Girl in the Ring, and I still remember this to this day, has one of the most horrific scenes in recent fiction where somebody is basically paralyzed and being skinned alive and can't do anything yeah. about it. Yeah, I, that's probably why I can't read it, because that stuff <laughs> lives in my imagination anyway. <laughs> I don't need confirmation from the outside world. It's already scary right, exactly. enough. <laughs> Strangely enough, I can watch Buffy, um, True Blood. I mean, it takes me a while. There's scenes that I have to look away from, and, and I have to be very, very careful, because I can... I can feel when it's coming on that I won't be able to sleep for three nights, but I can watch right. them and I can, can harden myself to them so that I can then go back and watch old episodes. But um, Michael Jackson's thriller when the video came out scared me shitless. Oh, wow. Yeah. That's a pretty scary video, actually. <laughs> it was. <laughs> and not because of Michael. <laughs> no. 
Well, there was some famous director who directed that. Jonathan, um, well, it wasn't Jonathan Dem. Um, I can't remember who directed it, but it was a well-made film for a short film. Yes, yes. Have you seen the Lego version? No. <laughs> the Lego version. <laughs> it's thriller? on YouTube. I wish the you hadn't told me that. The full 13 minutes. The full 13 minutes done in Lego with the movements and the facial expressions. Somebody had a lot of time. Way too much time. <laughs> <laughs> I, I just, I, I haven't seen that, but just to give my street cred a, a, a little boost here, I've watched the entire Star Wars trilogy in Lego with my grandkids. Oh, not good. That can only improve it. Not good. <laughs> <laughs> well, actually, now that I think about it, the by the time you get into the third or fourth volume, the Lego versions are better. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, they would have to be. They're less wooden. <laughs> right. Exactly. <laughs> At least they admit they're plastic characters. Yes. <laughs> One thing I'm curious about, you know, your characters uh, in Sister Mine and the other books, they're, they're, they're black, they're gay, they're not um, non-American, sometimes they're disabled. Do you think that science fiction today is more inclusive than it was when you came into the field in 1998? Yeah, without a doubt. Um, and, and that's um, built on the, the shoulders of a lot of people who did a lot of hard work before me. Yeah. Um, but yes, I think it is more inclusive um, in some areas of science fiction. The work is there to be found. A lot of the readers, there, there's always a group of readers that surprise me because they're not interested in looking for it. Mm -hmm. But mm -hmm. I think editors certainly um, seem to me to be more interested in expanding um expanding the scope of the genre and, and expanding the diversity of the genre. Uh, that's, been a, that's been a wonderful thing. And my very first... I think it's not just the diversity of the characters, it's the depth and complexity of characters that science fiction is willing to sustain. I mean, uh, here, here, okay, here are a couple of novels that no two people have... No, nobody has ever put these two novels together, I think. And this is your novel... Uh, the New Moon's Arms, and M. John Harrison's novel, White. Ah. Both, huh. both feature radically unsympathetic uh, point-of-view characters. In his case, it's a starship captain, a woman starship captain who just commits mass murder. And in your case, it's still my favorite character of yours, I mean, uh, um, um, Calamity, who is homophobic, she's got a bad self-image, she's overweight, she doesn't deal with her kids well, she's just a horrible character in many ways, and yet you make her the point of view character and make her a sympathetic character by the by the time the novel is halfway through. Um, and that's yeah. a kind of complexity of characterization that science fiction is seldom, or fantasy, as, as a genre fantasy, has seldom seen before. I just love that character because I didn't like her. <laughs> <laughs> you should have seen her in the drafts when I did. Oh, I can imagine. <laughs> I had to do a major rewrite on her. But um, I think it, it, it might be the kind of thing that as a reader myself, I wasn't noticing. 
partly because I was started out reading science fiction and fantasy very young, so it didn't take much for a character to feel well characterized to me. Um, but I, it, it, it hasn't come whole cloth from me. It, it, it's come from um, the feminist writers. It's come from uh, people like Ted Sturgeon, um, who were doing it before I was. Uh, Ted's uh, daughter, Noelle, has been um, going around to conventions and having writers read um, Ted's stories to record them. Uh, in oh, wow. celebration right. of the fact 13 volumes of his short stories have now been collected. Yeah. That man wrote a lot. <laughs> <laughs> yes, he did. But she's, had, she's twice had me read Crate. Uh, and, of course, it got me going back and reading all of the Theodore Sturgeon stories I had loved. And uh, the, the subtlety of characterization in his work is just delightful. And the things he was doing that yeah. I mean, yeah, we need to to get Noel on this podcast sometime soon. I mean, one of the things that struck me as absolutely astonishing, even though I'm not sure it's even a fantasy story, is this story called Bianca's Hands, which is basically a fetishist story, which totally makes you understand how utterly erotic and cool these hands are. Yep, yep. And it's a terrifying story. It really does not and, <laughs> right. And, and, but, but, yeah. but I, th- I think the good news is that Sturgeon or a, a handful of other writers could do that as a kind of quirky characteristic of an oddball writer. This is kind of, okay, this is what Ted does. Uh, and now it seems to be much more easy to do that sort of thing. It seems like editors yeah. are not going to say, you can't do that. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I may have been lucky or... Uh, but I've, I've rarely, I haven't had an editor say you can't do that, with the exception of, you know, putting certain swear words in young adult stories. Um, I haven't had sort of opposition to to what I want to write. Uh, and it's something that I try to talk about whenever I can, that that most editors actually want you to actually will work with what you've written. They're not right, they want you to do what you're trying to do. Yeah, yeah. They're not these evil people who are there to count beans. Yeah. And nobody said to you about uh, go, going back to the New Moon's Arms, nobody said to you, you can't do Calamity, nobody's going to like Calamity, you can't make her a point of view character. No, I think... I forget whether it was my editor who said she was too unsympathetic or maybe my partner or maybe it was me. And that was an mm. early draft. And I could, I, and it was clear to me because I was getting stuck. I didn't like her, that I had to go uh-huh. back and make her likable. Um, but when I handed the, the first final draft in, Jamie, my, my then editor, didn't say a word. Good. Cool. Yeah. And she, uh, she and uh, Betsy also didn't say a word when I handed in the Salt Roads to a science fiction publisher. Salt Roads is so, an interesting novel. We should talk about it. That's your most ambitious novel. I mean, that's a three-era historical epic. Oh, um, my God, also, yes. Well, also, the, my, also, also my favorite title of yours, um, because it just implies so much. But that's I, I, I wondered Jamie's about title. that. 
Captain Barton? <laughs> That's Jamie's title. Oh, it is? Okay. Yeah. What was your title? Gryphon. G-R-I-F-F-O-N-N-E. Because it's talking a lot about um, mixed race um, right. women. And I wanted to reference science fiction, so. Okay, there I understand that. I still yeah, think Saltwoods yeah. is a cool title. Yeah, it is. It is. Um, but, I mean, that's the sort of thing that looked to me, apart from this very strange cover illustration, um, could have been easily marketed as a mainstream novel. Yeah. It may have been, in fact. But it was also marketed to my science fiction fantasy readers. Good. And, yeah. and, and was that as much as anything because of the way they presented the cover and everything else, and the fact that it came from a science fiction publisher? Uh, I think what Jamie did was she took it to her boss, also called Jamie, but bear with me, um, mm. who was in charge of the, the sort of larger imprint and got permission to not put science fiction or fantasy on the spine. Yeah. Uh. But it was... It was um, they didn't abandon the usual science fiction fantasy outlets and um, I've never, I don't recall seeing a science fiction or fantasy reader complain that it wasn't genre. Yeah. No, I think, I, I think by that point you had a following and, and they were going to follow the novel where it was. Yeah. Um, yeah. That's, yeah. Readers rock. <laughs> oh, yeah, exactly. <laughs> I, I guess we should ask, with, with uh, Sister Mine now out and in stores where everybody can get a hold of it, what are you working on now? Um, I just turned in a short story um, to a young adult anthology um, that I hope is taking it. I'm not certain. Yep. Um, and this summer, because I've found that even though I usually only teach two or three days a week, I can't write during this week. So this summer, um, when I'm off, I will be going back to Blackheart Man, which is a novel that I just I got so far and didn't go no further because I was really too sick to be writing something that right. complex. Um, so I'll be going back to it and trying to finish it, or starting to try to finish it. <laughs> <laughs> I am no Charlie Strauss. <laughs> no, that's but I, I I remember hearing about Blackheart Man years ago as well. So yeah. Something yeah. we're all looking forward to. Any inclination yeah. to write a science fiction novel like Midnight Rubber sometime soon? Um, not soon, but I, I do have one that I think of as in the future at some point because I, I don't have the core of it yet. I know some of what I want to be dealing with, but it, it, it isn't a novel yet. Uh -huh. uh, so that's, that's going to come at some point, but, but I don't know when. I still feel like I'm clearing the decks. I understand that. Well, I'm. I'm I think Jonathan and I are both really glad that you've had yes. two really entertaining books out within the last year. <laughs> Three, I guess. Three. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, yeah. And you must be just about ready for a new short story collection as well. Yes, my agent is actually shopping one around right now. Um, the 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 market for collections, I think was never so that great for single author collections anyway. No. It seems to no. be worse now. Right. Uh, the, the editors who have seen it are very concerned about the fact that 
Um, most of the stories have been published. That was not an issue before. Um, and the kinds of offers I've been hearing have been about yeah. fifth. That seems to be a gimmick that people almost require these days, is let's have one or two original stories in a collection. I do have one. Okay, cool. <laughs> and, yet, and yet, in my last collection, I had five. I, I, yeah. I, was, <laughs> I was young and energetic, and I wrote five new stories. <laughs> that would so not happen now. <laughs> no. <laughs> but I mean, short story collections have a form, I think. I mean, these days you tend to expect an introduction, some kind of story notes. Yeah. An original story, if, if possible, to get people. Yeah. But in fact, the thing I find perplexing these days when it comes to the original story thing is publishers almost expect you to give away, as, as a promotional thing, you know, a whole, you know, like write us a sister mind story so we can put it in the trade paperback so people will buy that. Right. Mm-hmm. which is a kind of a crazy sort of a thing to, to, to have. And yeah. I also wanted to ask quickly, do you have any plans to do any more anthologies? Because you've done some really quite remarkable ones over the years. Right. Thank you. Um, I suspect it'll happen. I don't have any immediate plans to do it because that still feels at this point beyond my energy. Yeah. Uh, and there's so many other people now doing just wonderful anthologies that I want to catch up with their work first. (laughs) (laughs) Well, maybe on that note, as we draw towards the end of our our usual hour, it might be a moment simply to thank you very, very much for joining us. I hope we'll get to talk again soon. And of course, I will see you in Canberra at Conflux in in two and a half weeks' time when you're the guest of honor at the Australian National Science Fiction Convention. Yes, that will be so much fun. Congratulations on that. Thank you. That thank you for inviting me onto the show again. Oh, it's a pleasure. It's always a pleasure to have you with us. And hopefully, you know, maybe after you've been, well, maybe we'll get to talk in Canberra or um, after you've, you've gone and come back again. Mm-hmm. For sure. Okay. Well, until then, I'm going to turn off Skype and just turn off the recorder in just a second. Uh, thank you very much for joining us, and we'll talk to you again. All right. A- and I'll talk to you again next week, Gary. I will talk to you next week. Thank you, Nalo. Until then. (laughs)